You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Everybody, Danny Anderson here. Uh, mostly I teach English at Mount Aloysius College, but today I'm welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. And who better to bring Satan's kingdom down than C. Derek Varn? He's going to be uh, my guest today. Uh, today we're going to be diving into part two of our ongoing series called Keywords, a Vocabulary of Barbarism and Stupidity. The title is a riff on Raymond Williams' great book, Keywords, a Vocabulary of Culture and Society. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, go back and do that at some point. Uh, in that show, we covered the terms woke, gaslighting, privilege, and millennial. Uh, and today, uh, Derek Varn joins us again for another round of materialist wordsmithing. Uh, Derek, how are you doing today? I'm okay. Good, good. Uh, we were talking before the show started about how it seems like we're kind of picking fun at um, a particularly progressive form of liberalism um, with the words we're choosing. But it's, I think it's a symptom, the fact that the words that conservatives use are have are much bigger conversations, right? And so we're going to try and uh, address some of them briefly today, but um, those will mostly be kind of contained into uh, episodes where we probably do fewer words just because there's more to say, right? Right. Well, I would say they're either bigger conversations or as the ones that come up today are, they're much smaller. Um, so the, the, the conflations tend to be massive. I mean, when you talk about, you know, right wing buzzwords that are kind of dropped, like political correctness or globalist or those sort of things, um, cultural Marxism, which is a big one. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in that one. So I kind of want to give it its own space because that's a really interesting. Yeah, well, I told you before we did this, I never released this show. But before uh, my current podcast was re-picked up by the Zero Butts Network and it was independent, I was asked to do a series on cultural Marxism. It ended up being five hours long and I only released an hour of it because I started going through all the various right-wing theories, the various left-wing theories that they were mentioning and then talking about how they misrepresented them. And then, the, you know, there was some things that they said that there was a kernel of truth to. So, like, I went through that as well. Um, but today, I, I think we're going to talk about intersectionality because it's an, I think it's a word that has suffered from its success. Um, most people don't know what it means. The way they use it is to mean, like, inter-identity solidarity between marginalized groups. All right. That's not what it actually originally meant. Now, I don't want to mean like a prescriptivist here. Um, There's also other ideas that get brought into it that are assumed when we use it that aren't in its original instantiation, which makes it very different. Um, I've written, you remember, this came up particularly when I wrote um, the response to Mark Fisher uh, many, many years ago about. Um, the influence of standpoint epistemology on intersectionality theory and its relationship to Marxism. Because a lot of Marxists will say, oh, that's just dumb liberal crap. Well, unfortunately, while it's used by progressive liberals today, 
Um, and intersectionality does not come out of Marxism, although it was quickly adopted by some Marxist thinkers in the early 90s. Um, some other theories that, can't, that, that tie into it are related to Marxism and I think are misreadings, but they're common. So, like, we can't... One of the reasons I wanted to do this on this one is it's not just like, oh, look at the Marxists make fun of all the silly liberal progressives, because... Some of the bad, some of the ideas Marxists complain about, what the liberal progressive has, are our fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I love about Derek. He's willing to take ownership of his uh, of the failings of his own side, right? And so that's why he's kind of a perfect guest on this show. His uh, his Facebook feed is always uh, like talk about sectarian review. It's a whole bunch of sectarian battles unfolding twenty four hours a day. And, um, uh, and yeah, uh, my, my recent thing today was I was responding to a left wing meme meme where I was actually trying to defend sociologists, but the way I worded it was so hostile that my sociologist <laughs> friends got all super angry with me um <laughs> how many blacklists uh, do you think you're on i, I swear um, yeah, I bet, yeah weirdly lately i used to be on a bunch but i i managed to avoid it now i think people have just learned to just like you know i'm not out to get them in particular like i'm just cranky let the old um, man scream at the cloud right and so um um so let me uh real briefly uh address the facebook audience we're just gonna uh, that's just an introduction to the show um Please subscribe to the show on whatever podcatcher you use. iTunes is a, a particularly effective one um, if you have that ecosystem. And so uh, if you subscribe to the show, um, leave a review and that sort of thing, and, and that helps other people find us. But you'll also hear the rest of this um, episode with uh, Derek Varn here. I'm going to let the Facebook audience go here in just one second um, after I made that little uh, announcement. Derek, do you have any uh, goodbyes for your Facebook audience? Bye. <laughs> Hope you enjoy your day. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. And so um, um, back to intersectionality and its relationship with Marxism. Okay. So intersectionality does not come out of Marxism entirely. However, there were Marxist and anarchist groups who used a, who used a theory very similar to it in the 70s. Um. The Kambahi River Collective in Boston, Massachusetts, which was a collective of mm -hmm. um, a collective of black feminist lesbians with a strong Marxist streak, um, used a concept called simultaneity to talk about themselves. So they talked about the simultaneity of being both black and women and lesbians and the way that would change their life because of certain predilections that you got into because of overlaps. Now, um, intersectionality is picked up in the late eighties, early nineties by particularly bell hooks and, um, Patricia Hill Collins, both black, black feminist socio, uh, well, bell hooks, more of a theorist, uh, Collins is a sociologist. I, I, um, I'm going to mention this real fast. I'm going to make a lot of sociologists really angry because American sociologists have been highly politicized in one direction. And I think that is almost unquestionably true so much so that even left-wing and Marxist sociologists in other countries do not actually take um, American sociology that seriously anymore. Okay. Um, as I was discovered and yelled at about from things today, one of the things I'm going to talk about um, is a lot of these concepts have a have a uh, a clear pathway, 
And this one's going to illustrate it. it. A concept will come up out of either critical legal theory, anthropology, or just straight up law. All right. Um, a sociologist will try to expand the concept and apply it to a social condition. It will then be picked up by activists in academia and used as a as a new word to explain a condition. It will then get picked up either by Tumblr or a think piece. It used to mostly be actually the, the social media, usually 20 to 30 years after it was originally used. And then it will spread like wildfire and become used incorrectly what first correctly then incorrectly by the by the people who advocated it then inc and then more incorrectly by enemies and then weirdly the enemies using it wrong the left will often and it's almost always the left doing this will often pick up the wrong use you misunderstood by right wingers and use that as a positive thing <laughs> um and Almost every time I go back and look at it, I find a sociology paper written somewhere in the 1990s. I got to draw um, up some sort of like flow chart for this and put on as the, <laughs> as the, the cover art for this episode, because that's a really brilliant analysis, Derek. Go ahead. So intersectionality theory, um, Kimberly Crenshaw was like reading a lot of this radical feminist theory from the 70s and uh, also a 70 and flirting with but did not directly incorporate another 70s um, Marxist feminist concept of standpoint epistemology, which I will come back to later. Um, standpoint epistemology is relevant to femi uh, to intersectionality, but it's not intersectionality can exist without it. Mm -hmm. So um, she was working in critical legal theory, trying to come up with a way of understanding intersections of discrimination against simple discrimination theory where you couldn't understand a particular discrimination piece unless you understood all segments of someone's identity. So, for example, if black women were discriminated at as a receptionist more and thus denied work more, it wasn't just because they were women and it wasn't just because they were black. It was a specific intersection of two identities. And the, uh, the thing it was supposed to avoid was trying to weight more heavily one type of discrimination versus another. So it wasn't like we, we could end the quote-unquote pissing match between our, what we what is often called in both left and right-wing circles, the oppression Olympics. Okay. Um, by just saying some kinds of things only happen at the intersection of identities. Okay. Hence, intersectionality. Yeah. It was supposed to be a corrective to feminism, which often didn't look at, and particularly in first and second wave. Um, I mean, and first wave feminism has a dubious history in relationship to waste. Um, so it was supposed to incorporate those together. Marxist, uh, Marxist feminist um, picked it up. Um, and tried to add class to it. This is where Collins comes in. All right. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is intersection intersectionality was immediately kind of like privilege. Privilege was based sort of loosely off things that have been said in the classical period of like radical black act uh, black activism and Deb Bois, who was you know a Marxist, even though we forget that now. Um, Deb Bois, excuse me, I call him Deb Bois. I have a bad habit of accidentally French finding. Um, he was a Marxist. And 
Um, although that's largely missed. Um, the, the, the intersection of Clinshaw goes back and talks about how this was kind of like, um, folk theory apparent in Sojourn, uh, in Sojourner Truth, you know, in her Ain't I a Woman speech. Okay. All right. Bell Hooks picks it up in the 1990s. Um, and it kind of expands the concept along with Collins to talk about it as a way of understanding um, the way class, race, nation, and political economy all play together. And remember, when we talk about nation in Marxist circles, we mean ethnicity. That's the older definition. And for some reason, we're hung up on using the 19th century definition for uh, – we don't mean nation state. We actually – if we say nation, we we mean like – Jew or Scottish or whatever. Okay. okay. Um, she she really expanded this out in Black Political Economy in 2000 to talk about consumer racism and how that goes back to anti-miscegenation laws. And um, Collins and Andre Lord and Bell Hooks all started picking up this thing from Crenshaw. And now we're we've moved out of law because remember Crenshaw's initial concern was was the ineffectiveness of anti-discrimination law. Right, and we're now into general social theory, coming through sociology and then into critical pedagogy and general critical theory. Okay. All right. Um, what they pick up and add to it was standpoint epistemology, which is another concept that came first out of Marxist feminism, but then got in the didn't get into critical theory and sociology again. Of course. Yeah. Now. The, the, the history of standpoint epistemology is interesting, and I'm just going to be very brief here so we don't get bogged down on it. There's a weak form of it, which I think is obviously true, and there's a strong form of it, which I think is ridiculous. Okay. The weak form of it says that you are embodied and embedded in a structure, and thus you are limited in your knowledge, and thus there are some kinds of particularly qualitative knowledge knowledge of the way things affect you that you have from your standpoint. So therefore, right? if I'm a, an English professor, I've been kind of habituated into thinking like an English professor by those grad programs and that professional environment. And if I had stumbled into science instead, uh, biology, I would see things, I would right. see the same situation from a completely different angle. Right. This idea actually comes out of uh, the, Hung the Hungarian Marxist theorist, uh, Lukács' redefinition of class consciousness. Okay, but um, Ooh, that's a word so, I want to talk about in a future episode because we've had off-air conversations about it, and I don't understand it. Class consciousness—it's yeah. on the list. Go uh, ahead. Um, and there is this idea that the outsider refers to each standpoint as the self-family society. So this relates. As they are subjected to the cultural world, um, they uh, a person from a certain standpoint may feel like they don't belong because they're from a different knowledge set, and the knowledge set that went into it is comes out of a different worldview. Now, if you take the strong form of this, and it's been taken by activists in the strong form, even though I think most of the people who originally came up with it, um, uh, Dorothy Smith. Um, another um, progressive feminist, um, Dorothy Smith, who is a Marxist, uh, Donna Haraway, who started off a Marxist and ended up kind of a post-structuralist, mm -hmm. and um, Sandra Harding. Um, most of them do not 
take the view that you hear activists use. The activist view use, which is rare now because it's so easily kind of mocked, is that the oppressed person has more knowledge about the entire system of oppression than anyone else in the matrix. Okay. That, that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Like if you think about it, why would I as an oppressed person know more about the entire systemic view of how I am oppressed? Um, you might know more at, about the, the tele- teleology or whatever of it. You might, you might know about the actual outcomes of it, but that's still a limited view of the of the entire system. Yeah. Well, honestly, if you get really technical in this, you would know about the qualitative outcomes of it more than the quantitative. But you might not have any not you wouldn't necessarily have any statistical insight or any knowledge of the structure over the people on top, particularly because usually they kind of set it up. Yeah. Um so so the idea got you stronger and stronger in activist circles. It began to be seen as a way to, t- to stop, quote, derailing, which was um, uh, using logic, basically an argument against using logical arguments against people's experience. Okay. And, and it leads to the privileging of experience over structure or, or fact. Um, this got put into intersectionality theory to the point that even Crenshaw uses it because Crenshaw's still working. Um, but it wasn't originally there. If you get my draft. Okay. Um, now you can see this is not quite, this is hyper relativistic. If you take the strong reading, um, the other thing that, that gets incorporated into it by Collins and a couple other thinkers who start talking about othering and all this is um, ideas of objectification and domination through objectification, domination through othering, stuff from Levinas. So all these critical and sociological concepts get added to what is originally a, a legal framework. Okay. This gets picked up by the blogosphere because intersectional feminism becomes a thing in the 2000s to incorporate black people, people, other people of color, even class issues into feminist theory. All right. So they aren't just completely separated domains. And this is considered the major innovation of third wave feminism. Okay. The way it starts getting used though, because it gets put in the name. So third wave feminism, people start dropping the wave. So, you know, second wave feminism would become radical feminism and, there are big debates about that, even though it had a rebirth in the early in the late aughts in the early 2010s. It died really quickly because it tended to take really hard stances on transgender issues like um, I mean, and some people going so far as to basically promote conspiracy theories about uh, trans women being really men trying to sneak into women's bathroom to sexually prey on them. I mean, like it got weird. Yeah. Um, uh, and for more so, on feminism, of course, listener, go to the Christian Feminist Podcast, part of our network. But right, ahead. and you know, and also the way, as, as you know, if it, I'm sure the Christian feminists would would correct me or maybe agree with me that that the waves of feminism are also a kind of very uh, monolithic way to describe this because right. because there are huge differences in feminist theory even between thinkers within each wave. Right. All right. But generally, third 
third wave and contemporary feminism was considered intersectional feminism. So the way it started being talked about was a kind of subjective experience of oppression that different groups who intersect feel. And all of them are equally valid. And we should have solidarity between each other. So intersectional then started meaning something like solidarity between different um, groups. But it treated them all the same um, as if like they were all based on oppression. And a lot of Marxists started, started rebelling against it. One, because they found standpoint epistemology dangerously close to post-structuralism. Okay. Two – because of the quote, the arguments about how this intersectionality stuff was often used just to shut people down. So like, um, well, you don't know my experience, so you can't talk about uh, exploitation in general. Okay. Um, three, in my opinion, the way it's used now conflates three very different things, which is domination, oppression, and exploitation, which right-wingers also do when they talk about like Marxism and, and uh, liberalism. We actually define those specifically and very differently. All right, Exploitation is not the same as oppression, and domination is not the same as either that either. Mm-hmm. Um, domination has to do with social, social structures. Your boss dominates you. There's racial domination. Um, exploitation is about hiding how you gain from people. So like capitalism, the, the surplus value is obstructed without you knowing it. If you sold it yourself or could directly profit, you would keep all your stuff. Um, and oppression is formal legal structures, which separate people out either in classes, races, or other special categories. Like redlining, for example. Yeah. That's oppression. Yeah. Uh, but weirdly, there is relationships between them because wedlining starts as oppression but this, and then becomes exploitation and domination because it's no longer legally existent, but the structures it's set up are still existent economically. Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we have a much more complicated way of explaining this. But w- the reason why I tell this whole story is, one, I pointed out that as weird as I think the str- – I think the weak version of standpoint epistemology – you know, um, the, the, a philosopher that I don't normally agree with has this term called a deepity. Okay. Where a concept uh, has a strong reading and a, and a weak reading, and the weak reading is kind of obviously true. I think it's like embedded, uh, embedded knowledge because of your sociological experience is kind of obviously true. There's things and biases and heuristics you have because of how – because of your social group and where you are and your status and all that and your economic access that you don't realize that limit the way you're going to interpret and understand knowledge. Limit it, but it is something you could get beyond. All right. It's just not, it's not, it's not something you're going to naturally automatically do. That to me seems uncontestably true. Psychologically speaking, we have tons of heuristics that would line up with that. The strong reading of intersectionality to me seems nuts because it basically it basically says that if you are not the exact same person I am, you have no way of knowing what it's like to be me. And any critique that you would have of me as an outside could be A, othering, or B, worse, gaslighting, as we already mentioned. Yeah. All right. So, like... You can see how this becomes, though, the strong form is a very good rhetorical weapon for arguing online because it'll shut someone up (laughs) right away. Yeah. I think the weak form actually has profound implications for how you deal with stuff like 
trying to overcome racism and racist assumptions in like the academy, which is while it talks a pretty big progressive game is not. Yeah. It, you know, if you look at like the way women actually function in the academy, we think of female academics, but it's they actually there's more issues going on there than a lot of other workplaces. Yeah. Um, yeah, this so, other thing that comes into this is resistance. So you you resist the othering schema. Um, Marxists tend to not like the use of resistance as an analogy. All right, and if we could, I'm not. I don't want to talk about it today. But if you get into like hashtag resist, that is why. Okay. Um, because it like when we say resistance, we mean taking up arms against a government. Okay. Are against are against um, an economic power. All right, I'm shutting down a factory, and if you come after me, I'll shoot you. Yeah. Um, Which is a radical upheaval of the current system, whereas resistance in the hashtag form is more. Um, well, it's not just a radical upheaval, though. It's also purely defensive. Okay. Okay. Like, and so we actually think if we're resisting, we've lost. We're just now just trying to stay alive. Like that's. Okay. Like we don't, you never hear us use that as a positive phrase. Like when you talk about the Marxist great periods of resistance, you talk about like fight, like fighting, fighting fascists in countries that were taken over by fascism, where liberal and uh, where liberal and socialist forces were already crushed. Okay. Spanish, Spanish civil war sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Are, um, are even more like partisans in France. Okay. Right. That's what we mean by resistance. Um, this kind of psychological notion of it, we think weakens it and makes it too metaphorical. I say we, I mean, plenty of Marxists will use plenty of liberal categories, but like a classical trained Marxist would be hesitant to talk that way. Okay. Um, because we tend to distrust psychologicalizations. Um, I don't really want to go into why, but yeah, yeah. It's that. So in practice, um, it can be applied to all fields, politics, education, healthcare, employment, the wealth and property, okay? But it's so broad that it's hard to know, even in its in, in what I consider its valid uses, what it's talking about when you just see the term. Yeah. So, like, in the critical legal theory, you have a clear matrix where we're trying to figure out anti-discrimination law where some kinds of discrimination only happen when you have multiple categories of identity. Okay. Okay. They simultaneously exist and affect your experience. That seems pretty, pretty legit. And that's actually a big change in jurisprudential thinking. Actually, if we actually adopted that, we haven't legally, by the way, but it is, this is this, like many concepts got brought into sociology and it's tried to use to explain social structures and then gets brought into activism. Okay. Unfortunately, because of the difference between the strong and weak form of subcategories of it because of these other associations with the term that are not directly related but only tangentially related and have been made weaker by kind of overuse the word is almost non-cognitive now so like you you'll sometimes see leftists say what about intersectionality or you'll see people make fun of intersectionality and what they actually mean is like intergroup solidarity that's not really what it is okay. it's a it's an analytic it's not a it's it's not a directive Okay. Um, and so I remember during the 2016 campaign, um, a lot, this seems to be a term that is very li- alive and, and lively in like sort of the MSNBC crowd. Right. And so um, I remember a lot of those folks. Um, yeah, because they tell because they tell the rat- like, look, 
This is what I started making a point because I, I know you're going to get to this. But in 2015, I said, look, look at all these centrist liberals who advocate policies that we hate, who like would, uh, you know, they, they they were complicit with with Bill Clinton's closing the border. They were complicit with the a lot of the legal reforms that made um, that made the Reagan reforms even worse were done on the Democrats. They were complicit on that and they picked up what came out of a mixture of progressives, anarchists. And uh, and um, some Marxists, usually Maoist, actually, which is weird. If you look at the history of Maoism, they were the most opposed to this originally. Like, you know, they would put gay people in camps. <laughs> um, but now are all about this. I don't really want to get into the weirdnesses <laughs> of that. But listen to your own symptomatic redness podcast yeah. for, for that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that Maoists still kind of exists is a little bit weird. But outside of China. Um, but. Um, to bring it all to bring it all back together, so you have all these different groups using it. It gets picked up by centrists who use the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. All right, like so, the MSNBC crowd starts picking this stuff up to advocate for things that the people who originally used this term would have never. And I mean, I mean, both in both the academic and even the activist circles would have never done. So one of the things, one of the last things you see, the last step of that. When I pick it up, really, it comes up the the blogosphere activist weak in the term, but it gets picked up by think pieces, and then it gets used in the mainstream media in a way that actually confuses it more and makes it kind of useless to use and almost non cognitive. I've listened to people who are supposedly well, who are trained in sociology, who use this word in a way that I don't know what they mean, and I know the history of the word, so it's become like a it's like justice our liberty yeah like those big concepts that have been used to the point like no one like they're almost not useful anymore because they're they've been abused and have so many contradictory uh concepts behind them that they're basically a buzzword that means it's a it becomes a dog whistle to bring up another word that people talk about that just mean it means different things to different people um who think they know it depending on when they came into the you know to the political circles and how the political circles at the time they were doing were using the word um now in intersectionality i actually have thought there's a lot of marxists who think it's a completely useless concept i've actually fought myself to bring it back but to see it purely on the way crenshaw talked about it just looking at the way different kinds of things will show up Mm -hmm. like the way like uh, labor will affect women because of the, their relationship to childhood or the way racial biases and racial heuristics will affect both black women, actually in some ways more, more likely black men in the case of work, um, and what kind of job access they have and how they are treated in general society. I think that's completely legitimate. Yeah, uh, It's like when I talked about privilege as a metaphor for understanding structural racism. It's fine. But as a as an explanation or as some kind of tactic, it doesn't mean anything. Like it's an analytic, it, really. And so when Hillary Clinton, I remember to great acclaim uh, in that sort of MSNBC crowd on, online, when she uses that term in a speech, it becomes more of sort of a rallying point about the, how wonderfully diverse the Democratic Party um, is, right? Uh, or purport, yeah, and also it's a be. way of like saying. It's a way of like woke signaling, yeah. even though we wouldn't use that word. Yeah. And for that, but what she's trying to do is like say, look, lefties, like, like we're, you know, those Marxists or those actually are not even Marxists, they're Keynesians. Those Keynesian quasi socialists over there, um, 
ruining the party. Like, I'm one of you guys, too. I can speak the radical stuff. Here's this word. But <laughs> nobody should trust that. I don't even think centrists should trust that because, like, we. it's important that center the centrist in the Democratic Party, and I've had a lot of fights with them lately where I try to be nice, but, like, where I'm just like, be honest about what you mean. Because when you use that kind of terminology, and I'll give you an example of that. Everyone likes to throw, like, Camilla Harris as the next big Democratic hopeful, this this uh, D, former DA from California. Right. And I'm like, you should be careful with that because she's going to alienate a lot of the groups that you think she superficially appeals to. Because when they look up one of the stuff she did as DA. Right. Because of the nature. I'm not even, like, this is not against her personally. It's the nature of being a DA. Right. Like, nobody is going to support that. Right. Um, that's not the same as Obama. Obama didn't have a history of that kind of stuff. I mean, Obama's history is misunderstood too, uh, frankly, but he did not have a history as like, you know, for example, arguing that prisoners should not get early release for being, for, for fighting fires for $2 a day in California and risking their lives, which Harris has done because they need the labor. Right. Because otherwise they'd have to pay union jobs to go do that at like 35 to 40 dollars an hour with proper benefits and they don't have they don't have the capacity to do that yeah so i mean but if any you know you try to build a progressive coalition with that in your closet yeah and do it just by throwing the cool hip word intersectionality around and finding someone who seems to superficially embody that what do you got yeah you have the recipe for a lot of um another version of the Mark Fisher essay. I mean, that's going to um, rear its head again. That that idea that yeah, um, yeah you have sort of identity politics um, imposing itself upon you know a, a different conversation. Isn't, but this isn't really identity politics. I mean, like this is symbolic identity politics. What I actually think is different. Like, and look, like symbolic identity politics is what Trump does. Like he does it too. And I like oh he's com- you're conflating Trump. No, I'm not. But but like Trump's Trump's appeal to the to the quote white working class, which is weaker than people realize anyway. Like they don't vote, but like say farmers who kind of do, or upper middle class suburban professionals who kind of do, you know, who may not, you know, who who may or may not be college educated. Like there's a there's a symbolic identity thing going on with that. It has real policy implications. It does real damage to people. But but the the idea that like. A, a millionaire has some kind of uh, concern for the, you know, like white people systemically j- over his concern of making money seems a little bit unlikely. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, it always struck me as uh, suspicious as well. So, um, so. You know, I don't want to. This is not just something the left does. So I, w- I want to be a clear, but it's also not truly identity politics. Like, even the activist circles around Black Lives Matter when it moved from streets to college campuses, even they are still advocating for something different than what Harris would represent. In fact, they would be fighting a lot of the things that Harris has had to advocate because of the nature of her job in the past. Right. So. It's a very superficial understanding of even that. So the the other thing is I don't think it actually even – it's not just going to lead to more Mark Fisher essays. It's also going to alienate people who actually look up what she did as DA and what she's advocated for since. And it's going to – you know, a lot of uh, 
you know, black identity politics in quote people are going to be really mad too. It won't. And what they'll do is they're not going to oppose her. They just won't come out to vote. Like they didn't come out to vote enough for Clinton, except in California. Right. Um, and so at least a very, you know, you can see how problematic this gets, but I, I do want to like, I just wanted to say my other point about this long thing though, intersectionality is not a done concept. It's not, if you're going to critique the concept, you need to know what it originally was, exactly. how these early people really used it. And even in sociology, even though I don't agree with some of the concepts they brought in and tied to it, I still think what they were trying to do was pretty valid when you think about what liberal discourse was in 1990 um, versus what we talk about now. Right. Right. So um, – it's just that the the more extreme versions of this have implications that I don't think the people who even advocate it have thought through. Yeah, and, and to get that brings us to a next term. Okay, <laughs> um, let's talk about cultural appropriation. Is that uh, the second yep. you were looking for? All right. Uh, so cultural appropriation, another term that gets bandied about, and it, f- it feels like we're picking on liberals. Um, uh, but we explained that at the beginning of the show. Uh, th- there's certain degree of uh, depth or lack thereof for conservative terms that we'll probably we will get to a couple of conservative terms here with later this episode but uh, please don't feel like uh, I'm overly picking on liberals even though I obviously am but uh, uh, so uh, please forgive us for doing that there are like practical reasons why but let's get into cultural appropriation which is another term so like the kind of standard stereotypical example of this that makes the news is when on some hoity-toity liberal arts college campus that costs $70,000 a year to attend, uh, some group will demand that they stop teaching yoga classes because that's cultural appropriation, right? And everybody laughs and makes fun. So that's sort of the the extreme sort of um, cherry-picked example of an extreme form of this. Uh, let's talk about the term in more depth than that. All right. So cultural appropriation is generally meant the adoption of elements of a minority culture by members of a dominant culture. Usually if there is an imbalance of power due to colonialism and, um, and lately it has been explicitly tied to a notion of copyrights that some liberal activists from or in the United States have tried to get passed into EU law where like identity groups can sue people over it. Hmm. All right. Now, my friend of mine who comes from who comes out who comes out of Marxist legal theory, he's an international rights lawyer, says cultural appropriation is cop logic in its right wing. Okay. I actually kind of agree, but to understand why I agree, you need to know the history of the term. So, cultural appropriation means a lot of things. It can mean cultural erasure, like blackface, which is what that is. Um, it can mean cultural misrepresentation. Um, it can mean, uh, parody, parody. Yeah. And, no, can, and nobody's advocating. These are good things. Yeah. Right? And it can mean ex- exotifications, <laughs> yeah. but it also can just mean like the white girl wears a, a Chinese dress to the prom and a bunch of Chinese Americans and specifically Chinese Americans get really angry about it. And then someone goes and tells them about the history of that particular dress being made actually as a com- as an accommodation to Western fashion in the 1930s and it's really not worn anymore. Yeah. I mean like the reason why I bring that up is because there's a bunch of 
this one more than intersectionality, if you think about it anthropologically, almost cannot hold up. Okay. Even though it's commonly used right now. Um, and, and but some we, of the things that it's used for, I do think are problems. Yeah. So let me, let me kind of get into, I mean, I just want to, as a disclaimer, that whole every once in a while on my Facebook feed, I'll see this Mexican word of the day thing. Right. And, and that's, like, there's no real defense for that. I mean, and I think that that's, that's not what I'm arguing. We should let go. Um, and I think that there's another, you know, these, uh, uh, people showing up in fraternity in the South and blackface, right? That's not okay either, right? That these are different things than what we're about to describe. There's a, a an element of cultural sharing that is just, unavoidable when cultures encounter one another um, throughout history. This has always happened. And so to, to rail against that and to call that cultural appropriation uh, is, is problematic. Right. And so, but also as a Marxist, there are implications being used on international law that I would not only oppose that I would like oppose so dramatically that um, I would consider them gulagable offenses. Okay. <laughs> Um, so what do I mean by that? Is so that a word cultural appropriate, yeah. <laughs> which is also appropriated. But anyway, um, cultural appropriation, if you go look it up, it's actually very hard to find its origins because people don't seem to really want to talk about its origins, which I find interesting. Um, an academic study it wasn't really used until the 1980s. Um, and even then, it was generally called cultural misappropriation. Now, when I talk about sociologists doing this thing, this is one of them. Misappropriation is a concept of law. I misappropriated something. I used something away I shouldn't have and thus stole it. Yeah, misappropriation of funds. Yeah. Right. So cultural misappropriation was a way of talking about deliberately trying to hide um, a, the or, the cultural origins of something and claiming it was your culture, usually through claiming a tradition. Okay. You can see why this is important because it makes you know, all of history right. But that's not the same thing as you know a white dude wearing a headdress or white people wearing dreadlocks. One of the things that we've had issue with cultural appropriation because it, there, there's a theory of power behind it that that um, you can't culturally misappropriate if you, if you, so for example the fact that like Chinese people wear trousers is not cultural appropriation because of the power dynamic. Okay. Um, that gets complicated too because it assumes power is monolithic. Um, but this concept it was first used in an essay called Some General Observations on the Problem of Cultural Colonialism by Kenneth Coates-Smith in 1976. You'll notice that it was cultural colonialism. And it was the, a way of like stealing someone's culture from them. Um, in the 1980s, from uh, post-colonial theory, and I don't want to get into the, the long disputes between post-colonial theory and uh, Marxism. But post-colonial racial theorist George Lipsitz used strategic anti-essentialism, which was also picked up by some more famous people later on, uh, and strategic essentialism. 
was another thing. So you strategically don't essentialize your culture with dealing with a majority of culture, then you strategically essentialize it as a political weapon. Okay. Okay. Now, so sometime, and I've had a hard time pinpointing the exact time. In, in the 1980s, there was this movement called the Indigenous Intellectual Property Movement. So, um, and it's literally, you know, prompted the World Intellectual Property Organization. And it tries to, uh, originally it was aimed at making sure that the the indigenous peoples could claim rights to intellectual property, protect cultural knowledge from being wiped out. Okay. All right. Very quickly, and I mean, like, almost immediately in the 80s, these two concerns get meshed together. But this has happened at such a rarefied form of activism that no one really uses this. In the the late 1990s, dealing with issues of what is really – what I consider tokenism, like, you know, over-essentializing and mocking minority groups – this started being used to apply to that too. And that's when it all comes together. So now you have a concept where like indigenous groups, cultural groups have, have concepts that are somehow uniquely theirs. And you should not intermingle them. Most, most, Older anthropologists will tell you that the only reasons older societies didn't get wiped out was this, because it's a way to integrate people into your culture. Mm. Um, it's a form of symbolic kinship bonding. And um, th- this gets seen, though, as part of the – you know, at first, I think it comes – this is – it's used as protective. You see it as a kind of – against the idea we melt everyone down and then we have one – Identity and as Ralph Ellison illustrates in that famous chapter in Invisible Man, it's all really white. Mm-hmm. Um, but this eventually becomes like, hey, white people, you can't do this too. It's a way of policing those groups. And so far that now there's ideas that like this should be a suable and durable offense and like there should be ways to enforce cultural property. And I'll tell you the problem with this immediately from an anthropological perspective. I didn't end up being an anthropology, but I did study it. Almost everything people think is from one culture is almost always from another culture. Usually a minority culture. It itself has oppressed. Okay. I'll give you an example. There was this, there's this article, famous article that really popularized this, this term as ridiculous in salon, I think about six years ago. And it was talking about how belly dancing and yoga are corporal appropriations. Well, both of those are weird. One half of yoga, as we know it, was actually invented for white people to get money to go into ashrams to save them. It was a complete invention in the first place. Okay. Um, it was an Orientalist invention, but it was done by Native Indians to try to get Western money into their system. Traditionally, yoga is magic. It's not what we think of as yoga. Okay. It's not an exercise form. So, okay, so that's deliberately that's deliberate appropriation made by another side, marketed to a specific group of people that is not themselves. Okay. So that's weird. If you're going to claim that's cultural appropriation, and then you get into um, things like appropriating African American culture. Um, well. Some um, African-American traditions in the United States don't date back to Africa. They date back to Scotch-Irish 
immigrants because those were the, the people they had the most contact with. Some of them do date back to Africa. Some of them are completely unique here. We don't know where they came from. Who has a right to those things? We, we, they, we don't know. What tends to happen is you just tend to pick an arbitrary date. So, for example, expropriating Mexican culture. Well, what is Mexican culture? Mexican is also Mexico is also a settler colonial state, just like the United States is. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't wipe out as many native peoples, although not that they didn't try. Yeah. Um. So. What's so? How do you like? How do you do that? Where do you draw the line? You have to. You just arbitrarily pick a point in history where, like. The like this becomes a clear cultural ownership thing. Um, the other thing is it really does confuse. I think a bunch of different issues together because, um, a lot of what people are actually offended about a cultural appropriation is like cultural essential is essentialization and stereotyping. Yeah, and, th- and that's are, legitimate. Or right? erasure. Yeah, and that's Both legitimate. Both of which I think are real problems. Yeah. The issue is this this concept has conflated all those things together with things that have nothing to do with it, and, and like things that you tra- like. I don't know how how you would build an idea of of uh, of intellectual property applying to cultural items that doesn't lead to massive policing of. And if you applied it consistently, it even makes like learning languages impossible and stuff. Like it's if you really take it to its logical conclusion, it's it's a very atomistic thing. Sure, and it's and, totally dependent on property rights. Exactly, and and um, <laughs> so obviously that's a difficulty for you, right? And, and so, but I was just thinking as you were talking. So there are certain chord structures uh, in music that are more that come out of sort of Chinese tradition, say, right? Um, are so is a Western musician you know, finable or jailable for using a chord structure that's been imported from, uh, from that's been borrowed from another like cultural tradition. Are we really willing to prosecute those sorts of cases? As, as well, a, as the, 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 the correct answer is no one. The United States doesn't really follow. Like we're not a signatory to the Hague. <laughs> we're signatory to the treaty that empowers the Hague, but we refuse to sign its ability to enforce it on us. So <laughs> like the UN couldn't do anything to us anyway yeah. to, um, that's a, always a fun thing when I teach my students in high school. And I'm like, yeah, we signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but refuse to sign up to the the, and we support the court that enforces it, but we will not sign to be subject to that court because Kissinger uh, would be on a, on a ship someplace the next day, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it gets real difficult though when you talk about African American culture and um, and minority languages and stuff because it's not uh, it's not going to be easy to disaggregate. I mean, like, there's been a long history of that. And there's a long history of, like, black culture not getting proper credit for that and the black artists not getting proper credit for that. And I completely understand those concerns. So, for example, Elvis Presley, right? Um, yeah. Like, he is a figure. I mean, he's something that people point to often to talk about this particular aspect of the issue, right, is when there's a long tradition of something that exists kind of organically in a culture and – through the, I mean, through white supremacy and, and that kind of power, uh, there's profit to be made <laughs> by white people. But I mean, there's also right? the, the the issue with African American culture. Let's be honest about it. That makes it even particularly problematic for this. It has never in its history been completely segregated out of American culture. It has always been in dialogue with it. It has been abused. You know, 
the people who are belong to it have been abused by it and marginalized by it and have stuff taken from them. But it also is part of it. It is not the same thing as African culture. Sure. All right. So when you like, we, how do you keep the? And this this actually comes up with Ireland and Scotland too, and a lot of these issues where there's colonialism, but you have hundreds of years of coexistence where the line is is actually extremely hard to draw. I think about times where people thought that I was using black vernacular when I was just speaking like a southerner. Right. Right. You know, a great example of this, I can think of two. One is just generally early country music. If you listen to it now, it doesn't sound like country music. It doesn't have the twang. It sounds very similar. Jimmy Rogers sounds very similar to just the blues, right? Um, and so there was definitely a coincidence of those two forms. And there's a great band. I don't know if you've heard the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Do you know them? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, African-Americans who do... Basically, I mean, jug music, like mountain music. He plays a jug, right? And and uh, and this sounds exactly like hillbilly music, but they kind of exist to point out that this was a form of music that was also African American uh, in in its nature. And and so I think that there's that's a great band to look at the way that these lines are kind of very blurry, uh, and just great music to listen to. By the way, <laughs> my own little plug. So. I want to talk about, though, the people not thinking through the implications of this. It's not just the property rights issue and trying to figure out where you'd actually draw the line of who's who's in a culture, where did where is something organic to them, since most traditions are invented or expropriated anyway. Yeah. Um, how do you draw that? I mean, like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't think white culture or black culture is a thing. Okay. Like, what do I mean by that? Well, I think there's, like, a, there's... African-American culture in specific areas. Okay. And in the United States, there's like seven different white cultures kind of. And also we all have prior existing ethnic cultures and the category of right was kind of a false invention to make us all get along anyway. Right. <laughs> that's why people, you know, that's why different pale-ish skinned people get incorporated in and out of it. And if you look at the history of who's considered right, I mean, East Asians were originally considered white by the Portuguese and not like... Arabs are now, you know, and I, you know, I, I, this became very clear to me when I was in Egypt, when an Arab kid asked me, what am I on the stupid American racial test when I have to take the SAT? And I'm like, I got no idea. Check whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, Like, you know, I'm like, technically we consider you white although you're semites so earlier racial categorizations you weren't and also like look you're brown like most people are brown but like you know i don't get it either yeah um yeah and in addition how do you once you do figure that out how do you calculate damages uh from somebody using this right yeah um yeah so like I get – so here's where I get the legitimacy of the issues. Cultural erasure, cultural mockery, racist stereotyping. I even get – even though I'm, I don't like property rights in the first place, I even get like making sure that indigenous cultures get credit and compensation for stuff that that is used commercially explicitly to make money. Yeah. All right? I don't so much get yelling at kids about wearing a Chinese dress that probably isn't really – I mean – yeah, I heard a lot of talk about this when I was talking about Asian culture, and I was talking to a friend of mine who is uh, half Korean, and I said to her, you know in Asia there is no Asian culture, right? And she's like, yeah, I know. I'm from Korea. And I'm like – "It's like, but how can you explain that to another group? Because you're talking about 
a giant cultural region that's the very idea of Pan-Asian culture is a foreign concept to it. Yeah. So we don't the way we talk about and divide our cultural lines aren't even consistent to the way people understand themselves outside of their diaspora groups in the United States. I don't know how this works exactly as a concept. And that's why it's the easiest thing for right-wingers to make fun of. Yeah. The other thing is I think it's kind of actually it ends up being a very white-wing idea because what it actually promotes is this is an anti-miscegenation idea. Mm. Mm. How, how, yeah, that's a great point. How is this substantively different than the than miscegenation as a concept? Yeah. So let me let me talk to you about human biodiversity. Yes, this is uh, okay. A nice trans trans uh, whatever. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, segue. Segue into yeah. <laughs> into. So human uh, biodiversity uh, came out of the exact same movement. In fact, it was the exact same group of sociologists and anthropologists working on this issue they are trying to save okay. minority and by minority indigenous cultures that were being wiped out okay and by for schooling and all this and the other okay and this um, is a conservative concept i'm actually unfamiliar with this term um you brought it up and so do you want to like give me a definition of it or like when people use it and who's using it it is now only used by alt-rightists okay However, the there is a book that inspired it. It was about saving indigenous cultures. The history of this is a little complicated, but basically in the there's this group called the European New Right. They were infamous for being able to adopt and translate and use right wing uh, left wing ideas from the Frankfurt School, from from critical theory, from biology, from sociology, and use them in a right-wing way. Okay. They, in the 1990s, in a book called On Paganism, picked up this from this uh, anthropo- um, anthropologist. You must forgive me. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, the book was called Human Biodiversity, and it came out, I believe, in the middle 90s. And like I said, it's about like saving minority cultures and keeping, you know, it's, a, it's a, obviously a a metaphor for life and the, a book in France called on paganism by this guy named Delay de Baniste uh, picked it up. Okay. And it started being used in terms of population genetics and cultures. Now the originally it wasn't really so much used in population genetics. The guy was talking about keeping cultures separate so that they, so instead of one world culture, we have a bunch of little micro cultures and that includes all of our little white wing nationalities. Okay. All right. And these are probably Odinists, right? Uh, many of them, I imagine. No, I mean this guy, but they picked it, they picked up on it. This guy actually isn't that coherent, but okay. yes. Okay. I mean, I he he's he, uh, Alain de should probably read one day. He's, he's he's really good at this particular thing, and he was so good at it that he got published in like Telios, which was a Frankfurt School magazine. I mean, like, but they like you know bi- the biodiversity has a very genetics sort of thing so not only do they pick up on the cultural stuff and immediately invert it just like they do in using cultural appropriation ideas like we should stop co- uh, you'll see people a lot like talking about being sympathetic to stopping cultural preparation because it will save their culture and stop white genocide unquote right quote unquote which which is practiced through miscegenation for them right right yeah okay. right the mixing of cultures will destroy white culture and genocide is not going to kill us all. It's going to make us all brown Yeah, and destroy, you know, which assumes a, 
that white is pure and anything right, that's not right, right. white is tainted in some ways, right? Okay. So it's obviously racist. It's obviously racist. Yeah. Um they they start looking at population genetics and tie tie the word, oh, biodiversity and population genetics. This this uh, left wing anthrop this left wing anthropologist came up with this, let's use it. And now let's also move it to talk about genetic thing. And how do we save our genetics? Not interbreeding. Right. Which of course confuses us as you know, confuses races as species. Right. Um because you, you know, uh, to, to be completely honest, is if you know anything about the human biome, there's th- there's more genetic diversity, um, phenotypic diversity, in a- in black Africans than there is in any other group by a lot. Like mm. like, and even even like racists will admit this. So, so for example, sub-Saharan Africans have like four more types of holotypes, and like and like um like is it five out of the seven streams of mitochondrial DNA mm. and like all Europeans and Asians, which is everybody else, including indigenous people in the Americas only have like two. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. So first off they're full of shit. Like, <laughs> sorry, poo. Sorry. You can edit it out. They're full of poo. Um, if you actually look at the genetics, it doesn't work the way they're saying there are, there are population genetics. That is a real thing, but like, um, this is something I actually know a lot about. So they took this idea and they, they tied it on the cultural preparation. They tied it on to racist ideas about biology. Some of which are wrong. They try to talk about um, population genetics as if they're totally analogous to race, which they aren't. All right. Um, and they start talking about like, we got to save our people by we dividing up in the nation states and those nation states need to be ethnically pure. I don't know somehow ethnicity and, Keep our our uh, phenotypic traits pure. Never mind the fact that also, if you follow this to his logic conclusion, it would lead to massive inbreeding, right? Um, and be highly dysgenic. But whatever. Um, so that's where they took it. They took this concept, and I'm trying to. I will look up now. All right, Jonathan Marks. And what's interesting, Jonathan Marks now severely regrets having come up with this term. Okay. He severely regrets having seen right-wingers take cultural appropriation and use it to try to keep the, the quote-unquote white culture and white ways pure. And he regrets giving a lot of the smarter racialist this language. Now, what I find interesting about the age of Trump, and this is one thing I do find interesting, in the last two years, a lot of the racists have dropped a lot of this code. They no longer are using these terms. You do see some of it. There's still like a there's a blog by like a human biodiversity girl, and there's there are two or three legitimate genetic anthropologists who are kind of on their side a little bit, um, but they're very they're they are extreme in our view, um, and if you don't know a whole lot about population genetics, this can sound really convincing. All right. And if you mix it with the idea of cultural appropriation, you you know, you you now not only have you 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 shouldn't intermarry, you shouldn't learn other languages, we should wall off and be like tiny separate people and only marry within our in groups. Right. Um so Yeah, and honestly, I mean I can understand from a certain perspective, there is a certain oh, I guess melancholy, let's call it, if you think about a a culture that it's been overrun by capitalism and it's completely lost all of its, um, its heritage, right? There is something 
on, on a certain level sad about seeing um, traditional cultures enveloped into this hole, right? But when you take that this far, then what you end up with is something that's purely racist, right? And so, yeah, I, and yeah. I don't think anybody who uses a cultural appropriation would would believe in this. Most of sure. them do think there are limits. My only my only thing about pointing all this out is as a, is the intellectual property framework and the anthropological framework don't make a lot of sense, yeah. and we just have other words for everything that is legitimate in it yeah. already that are much clearer. Like, and I, I really worry about when, when we start, because what happens when these terms get taken from what I've noticed happening anyway, is these terms get taken from legal and economic and political ideas, get brought into sociology, get brought and they get brought back into law. But when they get brought back in the law, they are way more expanded and way less targeted than they originally were. And you could use this to police the crap out of people. And I frankly just think the United States doesn't need a whole lot more policing. Yeah. You know, honestly, what you're describing actually reminds me of the weirder things that Canada does. When Canada passes these strange laws about what you're allowed to do and say, and um, it, it seems like it, it follows that cycle that you just described. It's some uh, legitimate idea that gets filtered through <laughs> this ecosystem of, uh, of punditry and, and comes out as a law that uh, is kind of terrifying when you think about its, its ultimate implications. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we won't talk about my opinions on Canada, but um, <laughs> what if I ever start selling up extra episodes? See Derek Varn dishes on Canada. So um, yeah. Well, I spent a lot of my time there, and I, I actually find a lot of the idealization that Americans have for Canada to be to really miss that, like we're culturally pretty close. Yeah. And, um, uh, they have a lot of the same systemic problems we do, except they have an even more confusing governmental system. Yeah. And, um, and ours is weird and confusing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, and they also have some myths about themselves that I just can't really take. <laughs> um, cause I just, you know, I know them not to be true. So the, the, uh, the thing I will get into here just a little bit is you'll see this stuff get picked up by cities and stuff and people try to turn it back into law. Weirdly, even though almost all these ideas come out of the United States, they almost never get turned into law in the United States. They get actually used in countries like Sweden, mm. um, Canada, um, to some degree, the UK, although not to the same degree. Um, and a lot of times the laws don't last very long or they're, they're local ordinances. They don't have a lot of weight. Um, a lot of times they're really vague. And, but they have generated a lot. Like, you know, I, you know, I pointed out that a lot of the most obnoxious reactionary people in the United States are Canadians. Mm. And they're running from stuff like that. And they use that stuff in Canadian law to make arguments about how scary it is, even though usually they're misrepresenting the Canadian law or 
the Canadian law hasn't been settled by case law because the initial legislation is really vague. It's actually usually more often the case. And they, they, they're interpreting it in the most broadest, scary way possible. Yeah. But the fact that it can be semi-legitimately interpreted that way yeah. is worrying. Going and, back, um, uh, just as an example for listeners to explore this a little, going back several months now on the Zero Books podcast, uh, Doug Lane interviewed, and I can't remember her name, the young woman. Lindsay Shepard. Yeah, who is sort of uh, brought to tribunal at her university for um, – um, bringing up some sort of, I think it might have been Jordan Peterson uh, in, a, in a class who uh, challenged the, the the pronoun laws that they're they're having up there, and uh, it was kind of a terrifying moment in that young woman's life. And so, uh, for some more insight on what Derek's talking about well, here, well, yeah, I mean, the other thing is that Doug says those pronoun laws are not settled by case. And I'm going to get sound really technical, but they're not settled by case law. Yeah. So the, the weird irony that people have me, yes, I'm an English and philosophy guy, but so you guys know when I talk like this, I studied English and philosophy to study law, and I studied law after realizing that I was going to not make any money as an anthropologist. So these things actually hurt me because I studied them. <laughs> um, and so like, it is highly unlikely that the pronoun laws are actually going to have any like real legal weight, but they could yeah, if they were settled that way in case law. Um, I don't think they're intended to, but that doesn't matter. Like, in, in, let's be real. Intention doesn't really apply in case law. If anyone actually looks at the way the United States legal system works, good luck with that. Right. Um, it's the same thing. So we don't know. We wouldn't know unless this actually got brought up legally and it didn't. Unfortunately, with the Lindsay Shepard case, this has happened with a whole bunch of people and most of the, quote, intellectual dark web, unquote. And it's usually these issues. I mean, cultural appropriation is one of the issues that comes up with this the most. Yeah. Um, is the only people that will talk to these people initially are, are right-wingers. They'll get into a right-wing circuit, and then they'll get sucked in. And you know what? This is not just a modern phenomenon. This goes back to Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers was, was you know, he became religious too, but he was trying to out some things that were happening in the com- to communists to other socialists first, and then other two progressives, and they, he got denounced. And then he went over kind of the only people who would talk to him were right-wingers, and that's where he ended up. And that happens over and over again, which is, one, why I talk to dissonant lessons all the time, and, two, why I talk to right-wingers all the time. It's actually try to, to try to stop people from feeling alienated and thus picking, just basically picking a different tribe. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Lionel so, Trilling's novel, middle of the journey actually touches on this, by the way. So uh, another recommendation. Um, um, and yeah, and this is a, another, this is the right wing. This is the mirror, mm-hmm. the mirror reflection. Yeah, This is far, 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 far right wing. Yeah. I'm one of the few leftists who think horseshoe theory isn't as crazy as people think it is. Like, yeah. um, I don't think it, I don't think it's because the left and right have remotely – it's not like you go so far that you have the same goal as the other side. But there are sorts of uh, personality traits and even like explicit political ideas that both sides of the extreme ends have borrowed from each other yeah. that do murk up the situation a lot. And yeah um, you know, I don't know as many you – know, when I met hardcore Marxists who even scare me yeah. and they quit being Marxists, they don't tend to become nice democratic liberals. No. They don't even tend to become Republicans. They tend to become scary. Yeah. Um, are are religious? Usually, religious is like the best possible thing you can hope for. I know I'm on a religious podcast, but like you're just like, please, please become religious because the other options are terrible. Um, <laughs> so you hear that, religious people out there, were less terrible than some other people. So yeah, that's well, I mean, like usually, like you, most of you aren't hardcore racists, so that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> 
I, I talked to you off can, uh, off mic once about how I'm how I'm actually think like people have not thought out the implications of the secular right being actually a little bit way more scary than the religious right was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, so that br- so that brings us to this intersection. One of the things you'll notice, and you'll even notice it when we spend day like a day on the right wing terms, is. Almost all these terms have a history. Most of them come out of the left. Even the right-wing terms come out of the left. Mm-hmm. The, the right doesn't generate that much of its own terminology. I don't know why, actually. Um, hmm. The only exception would be libertarians, but I'm not even sure I consider them rightist anymore. They're their own thing. But um, Yeah. Well, let's uh, then – Try to. You said this one would probably be short, and so let's be uh, very short. Yeah, let's Talk pick on snowflake. Snowflakes. This is another term that particularly right wing or this is even right. This conservatives right like to throw around. This is beyond. This is more mainstream than right wing. This is not a fringe thing. Mainstream conservatives love to accuse other people of being snowflakes. So um, this so snowflake thing has an interesting but relatively brief history. It comes out of in the 70s and 80s during the uh, the child developmental movement, particularly led by the con- the notorious conservative Mr. Rogers, <laughs> later denounced by conservatives. But I mean, like he was a lifelong Republican, so let like in like a fairly, you know, but anyway, and 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 a fairly religious man, um, one of the few Republicans I kind of respect. But he would talk about people being beautiful, and unique snowflakes, and. During the 2000s, there's this critique of narcissism culture. Weirdly, again, this critique came out of the left first. If you read the culture of narcissism, the guy who wrote it when he wrote it was a Marx was a Marxist. He later kind of changes sides. He's Christopher Latch, but it gets picked up really in the late 90s, early 2000s. Simultaneously, as this is going on. The specific book reference I find for this in in the movie is the mid 1990s book and late 1990s movie Fight Club. Oh yes, that's right. Where they invert the Mister Rogers paradigm to try to you know break people down. It's 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 a it's a a psychological breakdown tactic used among men. It's common in the military. They do it there too. So you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. The right wing usage seems to have been just from a general cultural usage in the late 90s, early 2000s that really came out of that book, reacting against the Mr. Rogers, like esteem culture Mm -hmm. and against uh, the narcissism of quote Gen X and then the narcissism of millennials. And let's be honest, we all really mean the narcissism of boomers, right? Whatever. (laughs) But it's boomers who usually complain about this. So, you know, whatever. Um, so they, they talk about the culture of narcissism and that a lot of these people don't have resilience. And, you know, I'm going to sound kind of controversial right now. I'm going to think the reason why that works, it's not because it applies to left-wingers more than right-wingers, but because conceptually, I think Americans kind of are snowflakes. I, but, but uniformly, <laughs> right? This problem? is the, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah not right, left, and center. I mean, across like, across generations as well. Yeah, I mean, t- I don't think I don't think about this about my grandparents, and I know I'm going to get into like greatest generation 
uh, nostalgia accusations, but I don't think they were. I, they didn't seem, but like my parents, who were you know kids today's grandparents. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, and it doesn't seem like grit is not a thing that we seem to know how to inculcate, even though we prize it. Yeah. What we seem to be good at when we try to breathe grit is actually breathing trauma, which makes people more brittle. So, like, mm. um, interestingly enough, most of the right wingers are also snowflake. I mean, like, look, they get offended just as easily as left wingers are most of the time. Oh, it, although they aren't as likely to like ban you and ostracize themselves off as much, unless weirdly, I I actually have found this to be this to be true. There's this stuff about liberals being more likely to social select for other liberals. And I find that to be a somewhat true stereotype, but everybody does it. I mean, and I I mean, every Christmas Starbucks will do something with a cup and who, who is a snowflake in that situation. Right. Right. Yeah. Our, the war on Christmas is about the most snowflakey thing I've ever heard. Absolutely. Right. Like, come on, man. Like if you were culturally dominant, you would not care. And you are. (laughs) So like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, my issue with the snowflake thing is not that it's not right a lot of the times, even like some of the, some of the left-wing people are using it for. It's just I just find Americans to be a little bit easily offended about every damn thing. Yeah. So um, I'm like, even as a teacher, I encounter this a lot where I have parents yelling about me for teaching facts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not political interpretations of facts just straight up out and out fact and not like ones you think about either like like i'm always like oh i'm gonna get in trouble for nope i don't get in trouble for like the obvious thing that you know talking about like uh racial riots in the south or anti-mormon discrimination or whatever but i get in trouble for something weird that i didn't see and um this has been a universal thing yeah about american it's a very umbrage taking heavy culture. Yeah. Um, and that's been regionally true every, in every region I've lived in. I've lived in three in the United States and I, I divide the United States into seven. So, yeah. Um, well, and I, I think part of it is the fact that we have adopted umbrage taking as a primary mode of our political rhetoric, uh, particularly as it's shifted to this more online forum. Um, umbrage taking is basically what drives most tweets uh and particularly the ones that go viral right well this is one thing where i'm going to sound like a conservative i actually do think that the conservatives in the 70s and 80s were talking about the dangers of victimization culture yeah that there was some truth to that like um from my personal politics you know like i don't think oppression i don't think uh, oppression and stuff makes people good i don't think it makes people noble and i don't think it, it it's like why people are like um you know why we think certain classes are you know, important or revolutionary has nothing to do with the fact that they're, that they're exploited or oppressed. In fact, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So like, um, I don't know. I might blame that on some weird Protestant Christian stuff. Hmm. (laughs) If you could see my Skype screen, he's (laughs) ominously leaning into the camera. Um, Yeah. Just with the eyebrow up, like, um, Jacques. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, well, I mean, I, I actually do. I do wonder. I had a friend of mine who was Catholic and said, like, look, I'm Catholic, but I'm an American, so I'm a Puritan, whether I like it or not. <laughs> and um, and uh, 
I sometimes think that's true because I do think there is something to the idea that a lot of the way this stuff operates and the way we use it to signify identity and culture and virtue. Yeah. It's because we don't have other sources of it. So like our Mm. tribalism that used to be manifested in even in identity becomes a tribalism about politics because it's a substitute for what would have been religious and moral communities. Yeah. Um, which have been decimated by, you know, I would say capitalism. I don't know what you would say, but whatever. Um, no, no, I would agree with that actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's one of those things that like, I actually am pretty sympathetic to calling American snowflakes. I'm not sympathetic to calling liberals because like, I've seen how conservatives act on campus too. They're, they feel besieged. They're very... You know, they get very um, defensive, and that's a snowflakey move as well. It's not like there's a whole lot of grit involved in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so the one distinction between this term, which is largely employed by um, by conservatives, although liberals do like to point out the irony of conservatives also being snowflakes, um, in opposition to a lot of the other terms, most of the other terms that we've looked at, particularly today, uh, intersectionality, particularly um, cultural appropriation, those terms tend to get overextended. Um, snowflake is underextended. And that's why right. <laughs> that's kind of why it's uh, a problem is that we don't apply it widely enough. Yeah, you're all snowflakes. <laughs> he looked upon the crowd and all he saw was snowflakes in front of him and they were amazed. <laughs> the chick track reference, by the way. <laughs> oh, we love our chick tracks here. So, um, so Derek, this has been great again. Another four terms down. Um, if those of you who are listening, uh, keep feeding us terms. And I, I foresee this as going for, you know, an, an extended period of time. Every once in a while, we'll just throw out a keywords episode here. Uh, this is episode two. We're eight episode or eight, excuse me, terms in. And, uh, we have many, many more to go. Uh, yeah. There's like what? There's like 13 or 14. <laughs> there are a bunch of white wing ones coming, but like, I can't know how I can do more than two right wing ones in a day. Yeah. So maybe the next when we can talk about cultural Marxism uh, and, and, and it's uh, kin folk neo-Marxism, uh, postmodern neo-Marxism. Maybe we can well, here's, get- the, here's the thing. Like, I don't think cultural Marxism was ever a real thing. I don't think postmodern... I'm going to sound really controversial. I don't think postmodernism was ever an actual thing. Um, it's a word that everybody uses and no one knows what the hell it means. Yeah. Um, and this was true when it was more popular, before it was a scary word. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I've... I've I have ironically pointed out that like most of Jordan Peterson's arguments against postmodernism involve Nietzsche. Yeah. Which is <laughs> weird because he's an antecedent to postmodernism. Yeah, I'm like all the things that make post poststructuralism, which is what you really mean there, um, different from Marxism and existentialism come from incorporating Nietzsche into it. Yeah. Yeah, so. uh, I don't understand what you're doing, dude. Yeah, but anyway, um, so I mean, that's just a, a an example of the vastness of this conversation. Yeah, it's huge. Like, yeah. because you think like, the cultural appropriation when I uh is huge. I feel like I underdid it, but it's it's very it's so it's so broad and it's so hard to find terms when and you get the cultural Marxism. Yeah, yeah. This is deep, and it's going to require going into the Frankfurt School well, and conspiracy yeah. theory and, and all sorts of things here. So. And, like, different right-wing groups use it for different ways. Yeah. And um, 
Neo-Marxism is even, even more problematic because it has a history of as an actual thing, but it doesn't mean what – well, it's not it, – one, even on the left, it's, no one agrees on what it means. I mean I've been called a neo-Marxist. I've been called as a compliment by a libertarian a cultural Marxist, which I thought was very weird um yeah because they were like oh you're a marxist who's concerned about culture and i'm like <laughs> it's the i do not think you know what that word means uh it's well i thing. mean uh, it's it's like uh yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah so uh, the short point is uh for those of you listening uh this is think of this as an ongoing thing and and please do feedback uh like bounce back of what we've said here today um i'm learning a ton by talking to derek as i always do and uh this has been a really fun way and honestly it's a great w- thing for me to do because it doesn't require that much prep on my part i just kind of wind derek up and let him uh let him run around like the energizer bunny and uh and so uh, uh this is uh i i plan on doing more of these in, in short so um but by all means go to the facebook page like the facebook page you'll see this post you can comment on that there um if you comment on the website i'll probably eventually get to it oh i meant to oh shoot there was somebody who commented about something you said on the um uh mark fisher exiting the vampire castle episode and i wanted to run it by you for a few maybe it'll be a future episode i apologize for that to that listener so um yeah we'll have to run that by you later um so uh but by all means there are plenty of ways to get in touch with the show you can even email us at sectarianreview at gmail.com and uh, by all means uh, go to the Facebook page like that and by all means please do leave a comment on iTunes uh, a review hopefully a nice review but uh, that's a place that a lot of people find us and uh, I enjoy um, all the feedback that I can get Derek Varn thank you again uh, be thank lis- you they'd be listening to for more from Derek in the future and uh, for until then uh, my name is Danny Anderson uh, wishing you a fine day. Thank you.